this week's edition of Talk on Tech. I am Patrick Smith, and today we're going to do another interview-only episode. And today's topic is going to be somewhat on security. These days, so many of our records, our personal identifiable information, or our PII, is being saved on computers that could be stolen, that has your medical information on it, it could have your school information on it, it could have your social security number. Identity theft is big. And today we are going to be talking with somebody who actually works at a company that has to deal with protecting some of that PII that we talk about today. So today I'm interviewing Chris Felix. Hi, Chris. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you very much for coming. This is going to be a great conversation. So, Chris, most people can assume that when I talk to someone on here, they're already a technical person. Mm -hmm. So you must have gotten into computers at some point. So kind of take us through your early years. When did you get into computers? Did you have a computer? Did you do anything in high school with computers? Computers, electronics, it's, it's always been in my life. I was a 90s kid type deal. I had game consoles growing up i think we got our first computer when i was like six or seven and it was an old like e-machine it broke down <laughs> me just wanting it to work so i could play solitaire or whatever game i was wanting to play just start playing around with it i don't know if i think it was ass cheese back then just start ass cheese mm-hmm. trying to figure out just tinkering around mm-hmm. and from then on it was always i'd just tinker trying to fix things family learns they want you to fix it and when you do that it's a lifetime contract with your family oh yeah so just Going from there, I just was always tinkering with it, always wanting to fix it, and it just kind of came natural, so I just stuck with it. Okay. So at that point, when you were playing with your computer at the house, you kind of liked the hardware. You liked repairing the stuff. Yeah, the touchy-feely stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, were you doing any programming? Were you doing any web stuff? Like, going on? you were going online going, I wonder how they do that web page. Any any interest there for that? No, I never had interest in designing web pages back then. It Mm -hmm. was more like in college, I think we had one one class we had to take we had we'd build like a basic web page and then i tinker right. with that and then today a little gaming community i have i have a web page with that today but okay back then okay. It, it was more hardware touch field change out ram mm-hmm. reinstall windows okay so were you so into computers that when you were in high school you decided you were going to take some computer classes particularly or were you like a media technician like one of those people in the library that can help people get on the computers or take a vcr down the hallway that type of thing when I got into high school, I took my classes. I kind of was like, all right, I've, I'm naturally good at this. I could probably start trying to understand what I want to do. And at that young of age, you really don't until probably True. in college. They had a lot of options. Uh, my junior and senior year, they opened up the Putnam Career and Technical Center. They had, I think it was called uh, Server Essentials or something by Aries. I took that my junior year, and then my senior year, I went ahead and just took the uh, Cisco, and mm-hmm. you had two books per semester, which back then, that was a lot to take in at that young of age, but it was still lets you know what route you probably want to take. Do you want to go Microsoft side? Do you want to get the whole networking group and go the Cisco side? I started in, in high school, so I, it was still young, good to kind of learn where I want to go early, mm-hmm. and then... Uh, Right after high school, I transitioned to uh, Mount West or Marshall Community back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was the networking security degree, which had Microsoft and Cisco route. And I think it had right. a little bit of the Linux Plus in there and stuff like that. So it kind of got me exposed to all of it and kind of helped me learn what route I wanted to take. So did you find you'd done Cisco at the high school and then you came into the security? Did you find your taste changed once you were exposed to more things? It was still indifferent in high school it was all read out of the book take a test wasn't a lot of hands-on so Mm -hmm. 
in my mind, I'm like, man, this is really dry. It's it's kind of hard to retain because you're not actually doing it and retain. I, I'm one of those hands-on guys. I have to do it two or three times, and then right. it's locked in for a while. When I came to Mount West, the Microsoft side was fun, but I'd already played with Windows. I'd already kind of learned it. The AD stuff was kind of new, but it was all kind of the same foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, I went and did a refresher on uh, the Cisco. I still like the Cisco. I, I wasn't sure what route I wanted to take. Did I want to go the voice route? The routing and switching route. I think that was the only real two true Cisco options back then. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned you were you did Cisco classes at uh, high school, and I was I was always slightly jealous of people who had that opportunity when when I went through high school. Th- there was no Cisco Academy, so I was actually one of the first classes of of uh, Marshall Community Technical College's Cisco option that we had that was being taught by uh, Jack Loker and, and Dr. Randy Jones. So looking back, I, I was always jealous because I figured I had that class, if I'm lucky, three or four hours a week mm-hmm. that I was in that classroom. But someone at the high school level, you were having it like maybe 90 minutes five days a week yep. which is that's that's amazing that's uh uh math filling me right now that's like seven and a half hours i think so i would have assumed you had a better opportunity to soak in the material soak in the knowledge and figure out what was going on i learned the lingo early right the, i mean assuming if you could you know fight back the hormones that were already taking place <laughs> at that point yeah. yeah so but you had more time i thought to really soak it in yeah the lingo Today, Cisco lingo, you still are going to learn new Cisco lingo every single day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it don't like Nexus, uh, the commands change, the format, the port channeling, stuff like that's changed, and it always will. So you'll never know everything. But I did learn a lot of the basic lingo about VLANs, uh, spanning tree, and stuff like that. And that kind of helped me when I came to the college level to kind of actually, when I actually finally got to do some of the hands-on, mm-hmm. it kind of helped me a little bit. I was like, okay, I know I know spanning tree a little bit, so I kind of get what this switch command I'm doing right now is going to do. Mm-hmm. So that, that helped. I, I, I definitely think it helped me uh, on the terminology-wise. Mm-hmm. So you were here and you graduated with one of our uh, security option degrees. Up to that point, had you had a job that had any computer-related stuff while you were finishing college or high school? No, I kind of would just help other people. I did a little bit of contracting with other people on the side, just break-fix type things, nothing legit or Mm -hmm. formal. I kind of paid my own way through college working at a, a local restaurant. I didn't really get to see the real world job mm-hmm. of IT until my internship. I was going to say, was your internship worthwhile for that? I mean, to, to kind of branch off from it. Some of our students talk about landing an internship and a lot of times the employer, if, if they like them, they actually know what they're doing, they offer them a full-time position. Did that type of thing happen for you? Oh, yeah. An insurance company, I, I needed an internship uh, to finish school. It was my last semester and that's, that's a requirement here, which I think is a great thing. It forced you to get out there. Mm-hmm. So I, I lucked out. A worker's comp took me in for an internship. It was supposed to only be for like a couple of months, but they kept me the whole summer. When we got there. They exposed me to the infrastructure side of things, where they're networking, uh, where they were going. They were doing a lot of physical hardware to virtual P2V. Then they would also put me on the help desk, so I see the user side of things, the big change. You can't be all technical. You got to formalize your communication, break it down better, walk them through what, what's broke, how they can prevent it from happening in the future and not needing the help desk as much so uh, they did a really good job as an internship uh exposing me to a little bit of everything 
And then later on in my internship, I think it was like uh, July. I'd started in March, early March, my internship. And then late July, they were like, hey, we got an old, our wireless system is really outdated. I, I heard you have a wireless certification. Do you want to do you want to do this? I'm like, sure. So they roll in. They have boxes of new Cisco 5508 controllers and new wireless APs. I think they were 3502s back then, which were like the new N series back then. So I got exp- I got to do a site survey on the building, which their building is kind of connected to a uh, a mall of some sorts. Mm-hmm. So I had to do a lot of site s- surveying to know exactly how to place them out. I got it all installed and upgraded in about a month. They were really impressed. No huge hiccups. It went really smooth, and they were like, "Your work ethic and your you have a lot of self drive." And they just kept giving me other little tasks to do, and I would get it done a lot quicker than their previous interns or what they expected. And then I think it was early August. They were like, uh, have you looked at jobs? And I was like, yeah, I had a couple job offers in other states and stuff like that. And then the next day they offered me a job. Wow. They, they didn't want to lose me. To go back, just like a couple of things you were saying I thought were really good. You were talking about you were doing a site survey. So you're saying the building they have is not like a standalone building off to itself. It's very, very close to other businesses. And I would think if you're doing insurance or workers comp, you don't want uh, your Wi-Fi network bleeding over into those other businesses. So you had to be very, very careful to figure out how strong the signal is going to be around the outside of your, your building, correct? Correct, yeah. I did the first site survey. I was like, okay, I can tweak the power settings on each of the APs instead of doing automatic so it dies at a certain point. And then I, I get in I get exposed to the legal and the auditing and they're all and I think the correct terminology is compliance. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it has to be this. This is our standards for any of our our LAN, our internal network. It can't bleed out s- such and such link. So I had to go back retune it a little bit to what their compliance was after the fact they told me so i had to tweak it i think their policy this the way we have set up now we are connected there's probably 40 50 other small businesses around us and mm-hmm. they all have their own little hot spots that bleeds into our building sure we had to tweak ours to where it's almost five to ten feet as we walk out of any of our four or five doors it mm-hmm. a wi-fi dies did you, all, did you ask them if it would be possible to run chicken wire around the entire building just to make a Faraday cage? Well, I, I, I did learn <laughs> that whenever I had to pull cable, uh, they they ran a lot of, I wouldn't say dark fiber, but a lot of dark cable to kind of help the growing pain or growing pains when they, they expanded. So by that, they went ahead, if they had to pull one line, they went ahead and pulled 10 yep. because eventually they'll want that extra wire wherever they made that drop, right? Yeah, and they had uh, an area in the building where we didn't run wire and I had to. And I learned I had to run it through one of their outer walls. They had wire mesh and everything. So it, it's like Fort Knox there. There's okay. no getting into it. So they already it. had a Faraday cage Oh, yeah. On. I learned that the hard way. I see. And then you mentioned uh, they were doing P2V, physical to virtual, where you take old physical machines or even current physical machines and decide to take the entire operating system off of them and then virtualize it on running on a more souped up server. Were they doing that? I'm, I'm curious. Like I think about when, when I go to the hospital now, a lot of times the waiting rooms they'll put me in, there's no computer. There's like this hockey puck size thing they have in the room and there's a monitor and keyboard and mouse hooked up to it. And the way I figure it is, they don't want medical records stored on a computer sitting down there that I can maybe get into, take out the hard drive, and walk out the door with. So they've actually done that for their client computers. Were you being exposed to the P to V from the server side so they can consolidate their servers and their footprint and maybe get cheaper 
power bills and stuff, or were they doing it more for the security aspect of even the machines that your employees were using so that data couldn't walk out the door, or both? All of the above. Oh, okay. So when I got there, they had already virtualized most of their data center. They had 14, 15 racks or server cabinets just piled full of Dell 1U blades in there. And they converted all that into basically one use Cisco rack. Everything virtualized fit into that one thing. Yeah, you you think about it, actually. I didn't realize this until kind of just now. We're kind of going back in a cycle. We're going back to terminal services. Nothing's actually stored yeah. on the PC year on. Mm-hmm. We went all virtual desktop. They just they just log in. Their, their computer's actually in the data center. They're just, it's PC over IP, but basically just snapshots being sent to you, the mm-hmm. screen. So yeah, it's it's kind of there's more security in that aspect. Um, yeah. Our data, our server side, there's not much more security. It's more just less of an imprint on our data center. For the user side, yeah, the laptop or the PC could be stolen, taken. iPad, we have our virtual desktops on iPad. Those, that could be all stolen. There's no sensitive data on that anymore. They all VPN into it, or they, or if they're internal, they'll just log right into their virtual desktop. Through v- it's VMware View is that mm-hmm. that's their 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 client. Didn't they recently change their name to like Horizon? Horizon. Yep. Yeah, and we're getting ready to go through that growing pain. Oh. We're, we're on five dot one, I believe, on the View, and we got to jump to I think Horizon is six. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a little bit of growing pain, but I, I'm I'm happy with there's it's more of a stateless desktop. So that that's that'll be cool to experience. Yeah, it definitely. You are right. You, we are definitely going in a cycle because. When the original mainframes came out and they were at like giant uh, campuses like MIT and Stanford and all these places, it was these giant machines that would sometimes fit in most people's houses. And everyone had a keyboard, mouse, and monitor, which showed a picture of what was supposedly on there, and we were all taking turns using it. There was nothing <laughs> on the machine, and now we're right back to that. I mean, yep. Whether it be the cloud, whether it be virtualization, we've gone back to dumb terminals, basically. Yep. So that's that's very, very true. So you said while you were there, you went ahead and uh, they gave you the initiative to do the, the wireless survey. You helped them initiate that. And then they went ahead and gave you the job. Mm-hmm. And so once you had the job, I mean, as an intern, I guess, you said they were kind of throwing you odd jobs here and there. Once you got the job, did they specialize you in a particular section? What was your path from there? Each person, ha- we're all infrastructure. There's seven or eight of us. We all back up each other, kind of like there's an exchange guy. He has a backup. I would say any 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 big system, our phone system, anything like that. So when I started there, like, hey, we're upgrading this document storage system that all the users use. You're going to be the admin of that. They just strip. So I have one application I, I'm an administrator of. Um, I, we do have our own team just for that app application we all work together on. Yeah, we, we all kind of back each other up. Like, yeah, wireless, it, I'm the primary on that. Our mm-hmm. video conference we've expanded on, I'm a primary of that. So we all have our own primaries, but we all blend real, really well and yeah. expose each other to all of our systems so we all have a backup. Well, and that's really good because even in, like, security classes, you talk about making sure you cross-train people. Uh, you have people who can kind of do checks and balances, checking people out too, making sure, I mean, from a more sinister side, making sure there's no uh, uh, corporate espionage or mm-hmm. coercion taking place. But also, if you're out or if you get another job, how many systems are you the only one that's over? Oh, crap, we need to train somebody in two weeks because two weeks is the is a nice complimentary way to give somebody some time before you leave. So, yeah, having some... Almost defense in depth or cross training yep. <laughs> is very, very important. 
So, so your all's file system, I think you, I think you've told me how much you love it. Is that for, I, I think, I always think about the Microsoft side myself. So I think about in Microsoft terms, they have this program called DFS, Distributed File Services. And that's the idea that I may have a share called marketing, but it lives on a computer called Patrick. And I may have a share called graphic design that may live on a machine called Chris. That's a lot for your end users to know. They got to remember the computer name and the actual share name. So DFS allows you to create a unified directory where everyone just sees, oh, there's a graphic design share, and they see that there's also uh, a share for marketing. They don't have to know where it's at. And that can also help us back it all up at once. So is this what that technology was doing? And then is this more like user drives for them or, or backing up their hard drives? I'm just curious, like what data you're trying to accomplish backing up because you've got virtual machines. Our best practice with our users is not, it's a virtual machine. Yeah, it's, it's not going to get a head crash. They knock it over or anything like that. We still teach them do not install anything or save anything on your desktop itself. Every user has their own mapped home drive, which is their personal mm-hmm. storage only they have access to. We also have, and it's all on a NAS, we have one master drive that's mapped and it has all of the departments or specializations inside of each department they have access to. So it's all centralized. We map it all through GPOs just to make it more user-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, the virtual desktops themselves are only backed up for seven to 10 days. They're files that the data stores that everything's stored on is backed up every single day and then it's it's backed up off-site as well so just to make sure i understand this they still sit down at a physical machine the physical machine they log on to it has its own operating system but they're not really using that operating system they're connecting on top of that to a virtual machine is that correct yep it's it's basically a dumb terminal it's just got like a little thin client installed on it that has oh okay the, so it's not even a full-blown version no, of windows no. those okay. that those that have to work from home they still have a full laptop or those right. that have to travel they still have a full laptop but right. they're they still aren't supposed to save anything on it they save it to their h their mm-hmm. home directory which is on which is on the virtual machine was what i was getting yep. at yep. because i know that in the in the virtual world you can create these special hard drives called uh, user profile disks persistent disks Okay, that's that's what is that what VMware call, calls their side? It's one of them. Okay, because I was thinking <laughs> they have it's, disposable, persistent. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that um, when you create a virtual machine, that takes up space. That's taxing on all your four bottlenecks: your network, your hard drives, your RAM, your processing power that you have. And so you want that virtual machine to be as utilitarian as a regular computer. You want anyone to be able to sit down at it. So when they sit down at it. There's going to be profile stuff saved on there. Normally, that would be theirs. And so normally you have a small little chunk of space, maybe a gig, yeah, that, that, that would be your space so that no matter which one you log on to, that stuff follows you. It's like a weird um, bastardization of like roaming profiles, except you have... I think my, uh, VMware calls it Persona. Oh, okay. okay. And it bas- basically, if you log into this virtual desktop and then mm-hmm. you go to a new department and you go and log into your new department that has its own special printer mappings and everything in that department, mm-hmm. your other settings or files, like application settings, like you have Office tweaked a certain way, it would right. follow you to that new desktop. Okay. Because I mean, I figured you want them to save it on the shared folders yep. so that that small disk you have doesn't fill up. But also... 
it's always best practices to, to teach people to save it to the network share because it's much easier to back up. Oh, yeah. It's much easier to recover but, if they accidentally delete it, too. Yeah, because suddenly you have it saved to a one single server, which might have a gigantic tape or virtual tape drive that you can just back it up in one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. And you're not having to save stuff off Harry's machine and John's machine and Tanner's machine and Chris's machine. It's all centralized, so it makes your life and job easier. Much easier. Yeah. Okay, so they put you, they put you in charge of that when you were there, and then so that's more of a, a network admin style thing. That's more mm-hmm. of a Microsoft thing. Did they eventually start to have you branch out and go more into the Cisco or other areas that maybe you didn't pick up here at Mount West or or at high school? When I first started out full time, I did the wireless and stuff. They knew I had networking background because I was able to configure the. The, the core switch to get the wireless to work they were impressed so they knew i had so i was always kind of right out of the gate kind of one of the network backups mm-hmm. it wasn't until a few years about a year down the road i was backing up uh, the vmware guy which everything's virtual now and in, in our building our virtual desktops all our servers are virtualized there's very very select few that aren't i think tacax is the only thing we haven't virtualized mm-hmm. it was about two years after being full-time when uh employee in front of me that managed all the vmware he left and uh, somebody had to step up and I, I stepped up took it over i absorbed a lot of it really quick i learned more in depth on how everything works together the uh the back end the cisco unified ucs system works with vmware and then talks back to our our net app storage and stuff like that definitely got a crash course on that kind of stuff and then <laughs> Twice a year, we do a disaster recovery rehearsal where we go down to five, 600 miles away off-site and bring up our whole data center in 24, 36 hours. So I, I had to bring up the virtual network then, uh, VMware, the vCenter, everything that runs everything. So I, I learned a lot. It, it was pretty wild. Wow. So you guys truly have a... That's probably like a warm site, maybe, because you've already got the building. You already own it, but it is. We rent it out. Oh, you rent it we, out. We have a storage array down there that we do uh, backups, asynchronous mm-hmm. backups down there. But when we go down there, they give us the hardware. It's all just bare bone. We have to do everything, figure it all. Okay. Wow, that's that's really really awesome. And, and we've actually been rotating the last few years. Like uh, one of our new guys, Tanner. If we take him this time, we're probably going to make him do either the the router and the VPN, the ASA stuff, or we might have another guy branch off and do Exchange Restore for the first time. We rotate around each time to really kind of like, hey, we taught you all this at, um, in the office. Guess what? Bring it up. You're really going to it's more hands-on observing, yeah. absorbing the troubleshooting you have to do to get stuff up. That way, when it counts, they know how to do it, oh, yeah. and they didn't just see it. They're mm-hmm. not rusty the whole time. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. So there at the company, you all definitely have to deal with personally identifiable information, and you mentioned some of the regulations that come up. I, w- I would be curious in your time there, I wouldn't have thought about, oh, well, I need to make sure these specifications for these wireless access points are definitely at this particular uh, strength and this type of thing. It wouldn't normally come up in a normal business, I don't think. They're not that hardcore. So I'd be curious to know about regulations that you found that you've had to do or best practices you've had to do based on maybe some governmental regulation or regulation of the company that has limited the way your Cisco stuff works, your VPN stuff works, or not, well, maybe your VPN since you have people that work away, those type of things, if that, if that makes sense. 
we get audited constantly, nonstop. Mm-hmm. We have a, a legal team, a compliance team. They kind of tell us, or we'll say, hey, we're wanting to expand to a new office, or this is the network we're wanting to set up. They will kind of got to say, hey, it needs to match these. Or we'll explain, hey, this is how we want to set up. Is this in compliance? Or they'll, and they'll come back and say, no, you need to do it this way or this way. Virtual des- uh, the desktops. We, c- we go to them, hey, we only want to back up the desktops for seven days. Okay, or we say, we don't want to back them up at all. They'll say, well, users still aren't going to listen. They're probably still going to say, at least do seven days. So we learn a lot of that. Our applications that have sensitive social security numbers and stuff like that, um, they tell us, hey, this user that does this kind of job shouldn't be able to see this kind of document. So we, we lock it down that way too. Even internally, we lock it down so everybody doesn't have wide open to see every document. Our file structures are on our uh, our map drives that has all the structures. There's some HR is a big one. HR is locked down hard. Uh, mm-hmm. Terminated employees, anything like that. Every document, even on the workers' comp side, you have claims documents, policy documents, vendor documents, anything like that. We have special investigation. All that stuff is branched off per department. It's uh, who needs to know kind of thing, kind of right. like government. Who needs to know? Sure. We do it that way. You have no access coming out of the gate until your manager or your technical coordinator signs off to say, we can give you access. Same with VPN. You don't have VPN. You don't even have ActiveSync enabled on your phone to see email outside of work until somebody approves it. That's good. And that's all probably learned over the years by compliance, by audits. We learned from our mistakes. Now we have written rules and we follow them now. But it it wasn't right out of the gate. We're still kind of a newer company. We're still learning. But uh, through audit, constant audits, uh, compliance, we, we've definitely done a really good job on locking things down. I'd be curious, when you're having, like when you were talking about having to lock down the HR directory and stuff, are you finding that NTFS and share permissions does a good enough job for you? Or are you all having to use an extra product that you think is more manageable and scalable in that regard? It's done great. The years we've been a business, mm-hmm. yeah, after so many years, it starts getting a little bit messy. You have new people get a little bit less organized. And they have a folder instead of a folder, kind of like nested groups and idea. It gets, gets kind of messy. You have to right. restructure. We're doing that right now. We're kind of separating our old data and saying, hey, is, if this is still valid, move it to a new directory or not. It's going to be sunsetted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it it does it does its job right now. We, we keep revisit, make sure everybody's structure in their folders how they need to mm-hmm. i just didn't know if in the enterprise if you found that that you were like well i'm sure it could do a good job but we found product x over here which did a must but a much better job for us it was easier to use so we went with that product for now, on the security down. side on the back end we do have an external we have log servers and stuff like that if you try and click on an hr folder it's logged mm-hmm. we have an external company that does look at that and say hey this person was trying to access this folder and somebody internally get an alert if it happens once yeah they probably misclicked if it happens more than once you start you open an internal investigation that kind of stuff so you're saying as opposed to using um microsoft's built-in auditing ability through group policy you have like a third-party product you use for that we do do group group policy ad groups and stuff like that to lock some stuff down yeah but like more on the uh, auditing or knowing somebody that's trying to be deceptive mm-hmm. we we do have an external any it right. if you get the same alert all the time you're going to sure they know not to mm-hmm. so we do use an external like that oh, okay okay i was just trying to figure out like if you're saying 
you were paying someone to look at your existing Microsoft logs or if there was an extra product you were able to use that was sending alerts. Because when I think about... When I think about what Microsoft does currently for auditing, I think, you know, you can set up like a task scheduler that when an audit events happens, it can run a program for you, which could be good back in the day if you had a pager. It can send an email, and I think maybe you could put something in the event viewer. There wasn't a lot of options you had, so I didn't know if like a more enterprise scalable thing was out there. Although I think System Center kind of really expands what you can do, especially with... um, System Center Operations Manager. There's a lot of stuff. It's like uh, I always tell students, it's Event Viewer on crack for the enterprise, hmm. basically. So I, I was just in, curious. The built-in Event Viewer is still not the greatest. It, it, no. There's a lot of noise in it. You still have to sift through. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I completely agree there. So after leaving here and going there, are there any standout technologies or products that you've used there that, that you would think somebody who might be going through college who wanted to have a leg up would need to go ahead and have experience that might be a feather in their cap if they're trying to get a job currently in the workforce. In school, when you're in school and you're going like the Cisco route, you use Packet Tracer in class. You're still going to use that. If you're wanting to design and build on your own network, you're still going to use Packet Tracer. Uh, I use Packet Tracer a day if I'm wanting to tweak a network or spanning tree, you want to go to rapid spanning tree. You, You test it out on Packet Tracer. Packet Tracer is probably the best tool out there on the Cisco side to experiment and get real-world results back. If I do this command, it breaks it. Guess what? It's going to break it in the real world, too. It's There's not a lot of white noise there. Me, as, when I do do networking stuff, I, I do SSH into a lot of boxes. There is a product out there, I think, called Secure CRT. It's kind of like putty, but on steroids a little bit. It has more in-depth logging. You can actually build your trees on, say, I have this office and all my networking devices here, the data center here's all my devices. It definitely makes it easier instead of trying to remember every IP address of every switch in our building or in another building. It, it's definitely helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, VMware side, we do have, we did keep some older equipment, and I'm I'm trying to train um, some new guys. We got reusing some old system. I basically am going to let them install ESXi and build a vCenter and try and get real world. And then I'll go in there and do like Cisco does with their IE. Go in there and break it and let and see if they can get real world trying to fix it mm-hmm. well, when you were talking about the that product like putty i was i was seeing in my head vSphere because i was imagining in the vmware environment you see every single one of your vmware servers that you can click on and then see all the vms you have uh-huh. so i was just i was just imagining that screen that you have because yeah it, it's a lot like that right uh, vSphere vmware vSphere is still really really great vSphere has got some new um I think VM Turbo's one kind of like more in-depth stuff. They're, um, it was called Operation Manager. Now I think it's called vRealize or something. Yeah, you see all your alerts. You can go way in-depth with VMware's vSphere. Their alerts and stuff, configure alert, send like a group email out, say if this virtual desktop or this virtual server gets CPU spikes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It'll send you an alert to keep you involved. I teach a virtualization class now. I think I don't think I really had the virtualization firing on all cylinders till after you were gone but i had added a storage and a virtualization class storage being an emc class which i know tanner had that one he also had the virtualization and at least with the virtualization we looked down the microsoft path and we also try to look down the vmware path mm-hmm. if i had my way and i and i had the ability in time i'd really like to add citrix as well because i really think those three prongs would be pretty good to serve uh most people along those lines but 
one thing that I'm curious, and this is kind of, this just hit me kind of off topic, but I was thinking about when you said you all were getting audits all the time. And I also know that so many people have told me that I should teach a licensing class. Oh, and, and I'm like, no, 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 no. No, I'm not the person to teach a licensing class. Whoever teaches a licensing class probably doesn't have any hair left. Yep. Um, because licensing changes every day. It's, it's just amazing. So on, on one token, I was curious, going back, I guess, to your compliance people, mm-hmm. are they the ones who help you all keep track of your licensing that you have to deal with? Because I'm just thinking in a company... I'm sure Microsoft doesn't allow you to simply call them for free and you go, hey, this is what we got. Is this good? Because they're probably going to want to charge you for that phone call, too. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how do you all manage all your licensing? Well, I mean, we're very organized, but it is still a headache. Nobody likes to do it. Our, uh, our first-level boss, infrastructure boss, he keeps track of it all. Or, like, we, we do an upgrade and we buy a bunch more ESXi hosts for our uh, virtual environment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a license right there. I think those vSphere with operations managers like twelve hundred dollars or twenty two hundred dollars. It's not cheap. So he keeps track of that on the Windows side, like the the OA, the twenty twelve server licensing, the virtual desktop, the Windows seven eight point one licensing. We buy from the same person, and then they kind of let us know, hey, you're up, you're about due for a true up. Uh, is there anything? Did you expand? Are you planning on expanding the next six months? So they they do a good job of kind of helping us walk us through it right yeah licensing i mean vmware it used to be two for one on cores and stuff like now i think it's one for one so it's you talk to him you think you know what you want like okay i need 28 cpu licenses no you actually need uh 46 or something now because we changed our the way it works so virtual desktops it used to be i think per connection so yeah i could buy a license for 400 connections but i have 500 people well not everybody's using at the same time so i'm sure Now it's per named user. So anybody that could have access, you have to pay for. Wow. That that sounds like how Microsoft used to be per device or per user. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Which if your environment was you had 400 people and there were 500 computers, that would be okay for you. Yeah. (laughs) But it's it's usually the opposite. Yeah. It's more money. You don't want to waste money. You want to save money. Well, I mean, and it gets even so convoluted to where... I believe I heard an instance of someone not being very happy about the fact that there was a special license they had to buy to load up VMware's Horizon on an iPad. And they're like, why should I have to pay more to utilize this technology through an iPad as opposed to a desktop? And it just it's convoluted the amount of, of things that you got to have throw in there. So yeah, Everybody has to get their money's worth. If you're using a Microsoft product, but you have VMware on top of it, you're going to be paying them both. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's a thin client, you're still going to be paying them both. You're paying for the convenience yep. one way or the other. Convenience charge. Because, because, you know, the one thing that I've always thought in the back of my mind, and I'm sure, I'm sure Microsoft has done this, but as long as I've been teaching since 2008 with where they had terminal server, Microsoft did, then they made it to be remote desktop server. The thing that I could never wrap my head around was out of the box, if I bought 20 copies of 20 licenses for Adobe CS6 and I install that on my terminal server or even if I do it in a VMware environment when I install it how do I limit how can I really limit the fact that people can connect to that desktop or they might be able to use remote app and I can't think of how VMware calls it when when you don't get a full desktop instead you just simply run the application it's a string app well yeah, the, the, Microsoft has AppV, 
Microsoft yeah. has this whole thing now where it's like, I guess it is like ThinApp. I'm sure ThinApp has a, a presentation mode you can do. But this would be the idea that instead of showing someone an entire desktop, they click on an icon for Word, and Word opens in a remote desktop window, and Word's all they get. And when they close it, that's they get. Maybe, maybe there's not a word for that in VMware. But my whole point was, if I install Adobe CS6 on a server, and I allow them to connect to that server, I have no way that I can immediately think of, short of probably more expensive, more advanced software, to get a red flag that fires up for me that when there's 21 people using that software. And we, well, we kind of don't go that route. We don't put an, an app, like we don't buy like an enterprise version of say Adobe Photoshop or something like that. We don't okay. put it all the way out there. We'll buy, and it's because not everybody uses it. So we don't need to buy, spend big bucks for the whole company to use it when only five people do it or use it. So we'll buy five licenses. We'll thin app it which means it's just a little compressed separate fi- file mm-hmm. and we'll assign it to those individual users instead of putting it on the like, parent desktop and then everybody gets it. So okay. that, that's, that's one of those ways we, we don't give it out to everybody. It keeps us good in audits. It's kind right. of a best practice. We just don't give it to everybody. It's just need basis. Because I thought, I thought the only other way around I could think of it, short of doing AppV or ThinApp that way, would be to install five virtual machines and installed on the five virtual machines. It's kind of like having five computers at the office that had the software installed. Mm-hmm. It's first come, first serve. Whoever sits down the machine, they're using that client machine, and when they get kicked out, they get kicked out. Because I couldn't figure out a really good way. I'm, I'm sure on the Microsoft side, a product like System Center can mm-hmm. probably somehow do some uh, assessment inventory for you in that regard. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I didn't know if you all had to deal with that type of thing in your environment. Because since you're so virtualized, I just didn't know how you managed your uh, your licenses. It, I mean, if it's uh, an application licensing, Photoshop, uh, uh, was it Adobe X is the paid version? You had standard. Oh, the Acrobat. The, the Acrobat, yeah. yeah. Oh, they yeah. needed that Acrobat. so you can modify PDFs and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't give it to everybody. We don't put it on the parent or do a GPO to give it to everybody. Right. Um, we do a thin app, and then we give them the license key. When it they install it the first, or they load up, load it up on their virtual the first time, they'll type in the key, and then they're good. I think we do that with uh, Toad, a developer uh, software. Oh, okay. We do that as uh, with that as well. Do you have... Um, I know that if it was if it was Microsoft, obviously you could push out the application through group policy. Mm-hmm. Is there a way for you to push out the thin app very easily? Is there some sort of like streaming server built into VMware that that facilitates that for you, or do they go like to a website thing where they're able to say, "I want to install this," and assuming you're the administrator and you've given them rights, they can bring that down. Horizon has that. We yeah. haven't got that. I, they showed us a presentation on that, and mm-hmm. there is something like that. It's it's all it's kind of like all web app, web based. Oh, okay. I'll look and everything. We haven't got that far yet. We're yeah. we're getting ready. We have a bunch of thin apps. We're probably going to go to the app volume, and then the ones that are more global and more lightweight, we'll probably go to web web base but if it doesn't require any 3d rendering we'll go to probably the web base side so how do you push those out now then like, um, what's it the depends if it's like uh, our chat software we use jabber uh cisco jabber mm-hmm. that's on the parent or we right now we're doing on parent but we could go either way um we do gpo for uh the the thick clients the the laptops if they need jabber push out gpo most of the stuff, if everybody needs it, they're all in virtual anyway. We put it on our master parents or our parent images, which everybody ha- has a link clone of that. 
that image. Oh yeah, you know, I just it just occurred to me when you when you thin app something, it does make an MSI file, doesn't yep. it? So yeah, you could still push that MSI file out through Group Policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. For some reason, I was thinking the the container it made was not an MSI. Yeah, I think the app file. volumes are uh, they're not the MSI files anymore. It's actually like a separate disk or VM decay. And when you give somebody act rights to it or an mm-hmm. AD group, everybody in that group, it'll actually mount that VM decay or it'll mount another disk onto their virtual desktop. It'll look they have a D drive, hard yep. drive. And basically. it tricks the operating system to think, think that, hey, it's actually installed on the C drive. And mm-hmm. it, it gets rid of a lot more um, conflicts. It's special software. It has to write in just like the, the uh, local app data or something like that. It That's cool. Streamline a lot. It tricks the system to think everything's on C when it's really not and you still have a stateless uh, operating system in the background. Right. It kind of keeps it off the main operating system so it doesn't get all cluttered. Yep. Yeah. So I would imagine that, that being there, dealing with VMs, possibly dealing with people who aren't accustomed to VMs, there arises some situations where things don't go so well. There's some memorable issues that take place. Do you have any, you know, memorable oops moments or uh, or accidents? Like, the one I always like to talk about was that uh, that urban legend. This person called into to compact just to. I know people if they listen to the podcast they've heard it before, but if you haven't, enjoy. Um, a person called into compact. I heard this like way back when Scott and Nicholas told it to me, and and now when I tell people they're like, oh, I heard it was such and such. So it's an urban legend. They called in, said my computer doesn't work. Okay, so the tech person said, "Is your monitor on? I, I don't know what that is. Is your TV screen on?" Oh, no. No, it's turned off. I can't get it to turn on. I think Microsoft calls that ID10T. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> idiot. Um, and so they said, well, is your, is your box on? Is your tower thing? No, there's no power. Huh, well, can you look to see if they're plugged up? And the person goes to, says, no, I, I can't. Well, where is it plugged up? It's plugged up behind the desk. Can you look behind the desk? I can't see back there. Well, why, why can't you see back there? Because it's dark. The, the power's off. And so the person supposedly said, oh, okay, well, then here's your solution. Box that computer up, take it back to the store, and tell the salesman, you're too stupid to own a computer. And I, well, the reason I bring it up in class. When you say the power's out in your house and the light bulb don't click, you probably should return it. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, well, the reason I bring it up in class is because when we talk about the OSI model, mm-hmm. I'm always Layer like, one, Physical. physical. Is it on? Is it plugged in? And that's that's the reason why I talk about it. But, but you know, there are some people who legitimately don't understand things sometimes. So, um, and you gotta have a bit of levity because in that story, uh, rightfully so, they they say that that person got fired from tech support, which I would say they did because you mm-hmm. really shouldn't call your pain customer stupid. Yep. They they don't there's probably something they know that you don't know. And sometimes so. it takes discipline on that IT guy not to say that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yeah. Scott always says that uh, he starts with a cup of patience each day. Yeah. And so he's able to have some patience through all his classes and then by the time he gets home, he's out of patience. So have you had any situations like that where you've had to bite your tongue and not be like Nick Burns? And just be like, move. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah. And, and belittle somebody. Uh, the company I work for, there's users, there's there's generation gaps. The younger ones catch on quicker, the older ones. So they're a little bit more hand holding. I've had a couple incidents like that at a different company that I, uh, I worked with a little bit and was mm-hmm. helping somebody. I've actually 
it was like that TV show IT Crowd where they call the help desk and they're like, hey, my computer's not working. All right, is it on? And I, they're like, all right, my computer's not working. I'm like, okay, what's it doing? Well, the screen's black. I said, okay, is it on? I'm like, I don't know. I was like, okay, on. you have a tower for your computer, right? Is that the box that, that everything, all the cores go in? They're like, yes. Is it on? I don't know. Is the light on the front blinking? No. Okay, you got to push the button. I've had that moment. <laughs> right. And I, I'd watched that. I was like, I had an IT crowd. That really happens. I yeah. thought that was just a show. That was mm-hmm. nuts. That was probably the only user thing. There's some other things. There's some growing pains. You do some things. I, I've you, you learn from experience. We did a, a DR rehearsal one time, and it wasn't us, but they learned. We had, we're all Cisco, all our hardware Cisco. So we have a Cisco mm-hmm. switch. We have spanning tree on. They have some other kind of name brand switch, spanning tree, whatever the lowest MAC address is. That's that's the the master, whatever. So we're, I, we're hooked I, I up. Don't, I don't know. I teach all Microsoft, so I'm, I'm yeah. honestly not for sure. I can't you remember the correct terminology for the lowest. Mm-hmm. Basically, the master on spanning tree. Mm-hmm. So their switch says, "Oh, your Cisco switch has the lower MAC address. You're the new leader." Their whole company's core just gave it up and gave it to us. Yeah, was, you you were supposed to fell over to that company, but yeah, instead their yeah, we company were just linking in to just get internet access to put our website up for during our DR test. That's all we were trying to do. Just but to their get, like, company inter- surrendered to you. Yes, <laughs> I, I was dumbfounded, and I was doing the virtual and bringing the virtual up. Then my network guy, he was just dumbfounded. He was like, he was like, nothing's wrong on our end. It's got to be on their end, and then. It, Next thing you know, a guy shows up. It was like four hours later. We're just setting standstill for four hours. Can't do nothing. Nothing DR. We're just. I'm just taking notes on things that might change. We had new 2012, but our hardware was lower, so we had to do some more finagling there. Mm-hmm. And about four hours later, a guy shows up, and he's one of their main network engineer guys. And he gets there, he comes in, he's like, "Sir, I need to know what VLANs do you have mapped? What are you doing? Um, do you have a spanning tree on and stuff like that?" And He's like, yes, and he gives all the stuff. He comes back, and he's like, I think your uh, your switch took ownership of a span tree and brought down our, our network. This is a bigger company. It's it's a bigger building. They have other s- groups in there doing disaster recoveries on other ends, and they're all stuck. So mm-hmm. I, I was mind blown that something like that could happen. I'm sure they learned, and I'm sure we know to validate with them what they're using and making sure we can plug into it teachable moment yeah like we did a a a vmware upgrade we were on 5.0 and we upgraded to 5.5 i'm still new i'd only taken over for a couple months and i knew all the steps i'd I'd looked on vmware best practice always i did my research but it's still when you hit that button to go next and then something happens it's we call it in IT the pucker factor. You're like, oh my gosh, am I going to lose my job? <laughs> right. Everything works fine. Right. It's fine, but you think everything quick because everything goes offline. So I'm doing my 5.5 upgrade, and our cert had ex- just expired. I wasn't aware yet. So I start doing the upgrades. I get like the single sign-on, the inventory, and then next thing you know, it bombs, and my vSphere on my other monitor goes down, comes back up. All the hosts say disconnected. All my virtual desktops on my view admin page on the other one say missing. Yeah, and it's a work day. I'm freaking out. I'm like, this should have been a routine change, and now everything's down. I didn't know at the time. Yeah, it, it everything has to, the inventory service you just upgrade has to re-inventory everything off the, the or, or the SQL database. So, like, I didn't know that. I was still new. That that was my scare moment. I'm 
kind of telling on myself but that right. was the one time i was like i'm gonna lose my job i'm like i'm about ready to go outside and start chain smoking i was freaking out i was like i gotta start looking for another job i thought you were gonna say they were like all invalidated because since the certificate was not valid anymore that they wouldn't allow the connections because well, it, it, it did bomb it didn't go forward it did finally they all disconnected and finally came back and said your certificate's expired and it wouldn't let me move on and mm-hmm. then Finally, I got the buying a new thought cert or making a self-signed cert. Uh, I got past that. But that that's one of those moments you just freak out. And you're going to have them. You just got to stay calm. You learn through it. The best thing you do is just always do your research. Take notes. I, I take notes on everything. Any, so, any, so, yeah, documentation. That's another big thing that we could talk about because students here are like, I get to put out the fire and I just walk away. No, you don't. There's a lot of reports, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the help desk, they use a, tra- a tracking system. All their tickets are logged and stuff like that. If it gets bumped up to tier two or higher, which is the infrastructure team, us, mm-hmm. we we have to work with the user, f- correct it, then we have to document in that ticket what we did and how we corrected it. And that's closed. And it's, it's more of compliance, auditing stuff. We, we actually see what's going on. On the back end, if I'm doing this change and it messed something up, it, it we're supposed to be 99.9% uptime, and it brought down for five, 10 minutes, I'll, I'll fast note, hey, this is what happened. This is what I did to fix it. And then I'll go back and more in detail and say, hey, this is why it actually happened. Like something else broke it and caused this, if-then statements type thing. Then I also will put underneath it what I did, why I did it, and what can I do in the future to kind of prevent it. And then... I formalize to make it more understanding. So if like I'm out one day or I'm no longer with the company and my documentation is still there, Tanner or the other guy can go behind me and say, this issue just happened. What did, what did Chris do? And he can look at my log and say, oh, my, my documents are keywords on issue, like process engine table full. And this is the script you run to clean it up on the fly mm-hmm. or something like that. Or repository full. This is what I did to fix it. These kind of errors. It helps you because, yeah, you fixed it. You were the, the tough guy six months ago and fixed it and then it happens again you're like man i can't i just had a moment and i knew what to do now i don't the company realizes your manager even will remember that you fixed this in 10 minutes last time why is it taking you two hours so right. it, it benefits you and everybody else around you well i know i interviewed greg napier and chris starkey both who work for a consulting company that, that i think may have some affiliation with you all may help you contract stuff with you but they always talked about the fact that in that regard i mean in your case you work for your company you're doing work for your company Mm -hmm. they are getting paid by the minute or by the hour that type of thing and they would always say look our bosses are okay with paying us the first time Mm -hmm. five hours to figure this out the second time it happens they don't want to pay that that I learned that. They paid me to learn that knowledge. I should be able to look it up and get it done a lot faster. So having some sort of knowledge base, something, like you said, a ticketing system, Mm -hmm. something that you can look back on, it's going to be very helpful. And I imagine that even your help desk has access to that information. So so it becomes kind of a mind share, like all of the information throughout the company that gets learned and everyone's able to access. Yeah, it's kind of informal knowledge transfer. You're you see this guy's working on a ticket and you can see he's still working on it, but he's filling in his notes. You're like, okay, I see what he's doing, how he's troubleshooting. You actually kind of, one guy's working on exchange and he's noting each step what he's doing in an email or on the ticket. And you're like, okay, I, I get his troubleshooting. Or I say, oh, he skipped a troubleshooting on something. And I'll, I'll be like, yell over the cube and be like, hey, have you tried this or something? Mm-hmm. It kind of helps everybody even real time too. So you're just saying in the beginning 
times tight, you'll say, this happened, this is how I fixed it. Just so tomorrow, you get a little reminder there, almost like a sticky note that was mm-hmm. like, I need to expand on this. And then you come back and you expand on it to explain why it happened, and or, or at least the, the events that led up to it, and try to expand on it more. And then you put in your keywords, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. My first DR, I actually got to do a little bit of networking and exchange, which was, and I had a lot of chicken scratch notes. My the last time I went to DR, I did all the virtual, everything virtual, mm-hmm. all the VMware stuff. First time, my book, I had sticky notes, chicken scratch on the side that only probably me would understand the first time. And then two weeks after DR, I finally get to relax, get caught up on my normal work. I go back, I formalize it and make it step by step okay i gotta add data stores well vmware by default only allows eight data stores so you have to go into the advanced settings on the hosts and modify this this advanced entry to get more that's the kind of stuff i'll I'll note down and break down a little bit more because you know the next person or if i have to do it next time they'll need to know that so i I go back elliot parker i had him for technical writing he Mm -hmm. helped me a lot on kind of breaking stuff down he was always big into like brainstorm at first do like a little real, real rough draft mm-hmm. just to get your knowledge on paper. Because if you just do it all at once, you're you're just going to have, I guess, writer's block. You're not going to be able to remember everything, all the details and stuff. You're not going to be able to write it out. Mm-hmm. That's the way I do it. I'll chicken scratch it the first time, rough draft it out the second time. And then after the fact, if I know another employee is going to go next time and do it, I'll actually put some screenshots in here. Hey, you know what, what I referred to in this line? You might only see it as... <clears throat> a class C IP address, you need to change it to a slash 23. Well, here's a screenshot of actually where I changed it and why I changed it, that kind of stuff. A little tip I'll throw out there for you. If, if you're doing that type of thing, I don't know if you're aware. Windows 7, so I'm assuming, you know. A, a little sticky note thing. 2008 R2 probably has it as well. No, um, in Windows 7, there's a program, and I'm assuming higher, troubleshooting step recorder. If you look up, I think you can just start typing in step. Hmm. But um, if you turn it on, it starts recording almost like Camtasia you'd expect. And then it, it records all of your button clicks, all your mouse clicks of where you're going and what you're opening. That has a built-in screen capture on it? Well, here's what happens. Like it, like maybe if I need to send you something, I'm like, this is what it's doing. I can go through those steps. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done, it has a little recorder. You hit stop down there. And it goes, how would you like to save this? You can save it as DHTML, these different versions. It'll make a zip file. And then it makes a web page that has all these screen pictures it's taken of the of the screen, usually a little red box around the arrow you're at. It'll send, like, uh, debugging data. But I was just thinking if you needed to get some really quick screenshots and you didn't want to do them manually, you could fire that up and then just steal those pictures out of there. That would actually speed up a little bit and for whenever I take notes. I'd, I'd use, like, the built-in snipping tool or whatever that's mm-hmm. Windows 8 or or beyond sure i always use that but that would actually streamline instead of me having to stop save it save that file do a mm-hmm. little highlight on it like i say it's called it's it's something steps recorder mm-hmm. or step recorder and it makes you a nice little file and they, you can even zip it and then send it an email right then and there so that could be useful and i know it's definitely in seven i haven't checked in eight or eight one but i'd imagine it's still there for it. so you I mean, may I've, you may check I've that thought out about using the camtasia stuff but it's a little more bloated and stuff and you can't sure play. Well, something um, something Jack Loker likes to use a lot. He uses uh, Snagit, which mm-hmm. is is we more not the video side of it, more the the picture side of it. You can like do little balloons and and pointers and stuff our, like our that. Our training team uses that pretty heavily, I believe. Yeah, and they even had an open source one at one point called uh, Jing J I N G, 
and it was open source. I don't know if it's still around, but it was freeware and you could you could do a lot of things. Hmm. So you know, this is more more mind share stuff. You yeah. know, to go ahead and and uh, and share with people. So to kind of round third and start wrapping up with your experience here, with your experience in high school, and now where you're at in industry. Do you have recommendations or advice for for what people should look to be doing? Are there technologies you think, man, I wish I would have learned about that because that would have really given me a leg up, those type of things, even trends? You really just have to put yourself out there first. Go and play with a little, touch a little bit of everything. Touch the Microsoft, touch the VMware or the Hyper-V, touch it all. And then whatever you see yourself drawing back to, like I love the networking, mm-hmm. now I'm doing virtual. I'm in love with vir- the virtual and uh, it's not going to go anywhere. You just need to expose yourself to everything and then see what you call. The security track I did here, it, it touched everything. It touched the Microsoft side, it touched the Cisco side, and I think even Linux was in there. Linux was kind of new to me, which was mm-hmm. like the MBU2 kind of stripped down. That actually helped me a little bit on the little bit of Red Hat and SLUS or another flavor of Linux we use. All that's kind of helped me, but really the best advice I can give them is just reach out and touch everything in your field of view. If you're wanting to do networking, go and you're going down the Cisco track. You got four different other routes you can split off in the Cisco. You can go the voice, the routing and switching, the collaboration, which is the uh, the video conference and all that kind of stuff. You just You just got to touch it all and then see what your calling is. Okay. I think that's really, really good advice because, and, and then I guess I could also, I could add to that, that, um, you're only going to get so much here in two years and anybody that goes into it better be willing to understand that it's not like you're going to leave here with that knowledge and be like, okay, I'm done. No, you never stop. Technology is always advancing every day. Yeah. Uh, It's never going to stop. You walk out of here and you kind of get a head start and know the background and how things work. But the second you go in the real world, there's going to, in six months, it's going to involve the new, the best practices has changed and you got to get up to those standards. So mm-hmm. it's always going to change. You can never think you know everything yeah. or you're going to find yourself way behind. And next thing you know, you're getting uh, hacked or DDoSed or something. And, and I would add on to that, you can, you, yeah, you definitely can, don't think you know everything, but also uh, understand what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Don't feel uncomfortable about saying, I don't know that. I'll go look for that. Yeah, absolutely not. You're not going to know everything. You're going to run into a situation you don't know, and you can either bounce off your team. If you like, I have a really strong team coworker. I can bounce any idea off. He can do the same with me, and we can build off each other. I mean, this is the internet age. You have an issue right now. Nobody in the shop's able to really help you in your group. Google it. I mean, somebody else in the world has had that same issue, and they've documented it, and they document their routes they took to get to to point B and you can take that knowledge and build off it and do and do the same thing I, if I do IBM stuff part of my job I'll go onto a form site and see somebody's having issues I'll just throw out advice try this or I had this try this knowledge is everywhere you don't have to pay for you get through school you get your certs and stuff but once you're in the real world knowledge don't end use the internet use anything at your resource to advance your knowledge and what Mm -hmm. you're doing or what you could be doing in six months down the road yeah that's true and you are helping other people i mean you're kind of uh i think it's a little little buddhist but like you know you get back in the world what you put out there you're going on those forums and you're helping those people out and couple weeks down the road you may be the one posting on the forum and somebody yeah. else may be the one they help me answering. i'm just paying it forward <laughs> yeah there you go there you go 
Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I hope I hope everybody got a, a better idea of how there can be regulations, either government-wise or imposed by the company, that will that will not only take the best practices you learned here in school and put them into place, but you may have to even make those more restrictive and, and tighter. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, thank you for for talking about your experience of going through that because I'm I feel sure for many people that are listening to this. That's not a, a situation or an experience <laughs> they've ever had, but that at least gives gives them an idea and opens their eyes to what's out there. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you for having me. I really yeah. appreci- appreciate the offer. Uh, I mean, I had you for a lot of classes, so I have you to thank on learning a lot of things. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. And so that's going to do it this week for Talk on Tech. Join us next week, but until then, have a great week. <laughs>